Okay, we're back in the Gospel of John today. It's been a while since we were in John with Christmas. We're back in chapter 9. Now, I know we're not going to have screens today, and I have gotten tied at the hip to using my screens. So, I'm going to use them, and you're not going to see them, but I, they're my notes anymore. So, i got to use the thing. But uh, we're going to be in John chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. The title of my message today is Confidential Information. Confidential Information. Before we jump into the text, let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask His blessing upon His word as we study it together. Father... I just pray that as we study your word today, that you would give me freedom. Lord, help me not to be thrown off in my mind by just technological blips that happen. Father, I thank you for the gift of people that you have brought to this church who have helped us in so many ways develop these things. And Lord, how flawlessly... They normally work for us. We just thank you. I thank you for their devotion um, to, to do this. I know it's a big sacrifice for them. I pray that, Lord, you just give me recall and a quiet heart before you to simply work through these verses, to bring out the truth that is here. And Holy Spirit, we, we pray to you, our blessed God, Trinity, in Trinity. Holy Spirit, we pray and ask that you would just take your word, you would apply it to our heart. We would leave here changed people, transformed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. Let's read the text and... And I'm going to make some comments as we get through the text. And then we're obviously just going to come back and focus in on a portion of this passage. Um, we'll be in these verses and in this chapter now for a few weeks. As he passed by. Now, I guess we got to, because it's been several weeks, we got to tie ourselves back to the previous chapter. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You remember the teaching as we've worked through that. So they, the Jewish leaders, pick up stones to stone him. Jesus hid himself. He went out of the temple. And as he passed by, saw a man that was blind from birth. The text does not tell us whether or not this man was accustomed to be in this spot. In Acts chapter 3, we're told of a story of a man who was lame from birth who would always sit at the beautiful gate. And Peter and John would go into that gate whenever they were at the temple and yet, for some reason, they never noticed him. And the guy asked for alms, 
And Peter and John notice him. And they say, I don't have any money to give you, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. The guy was bl not blind from birth, but lame from birth. But he'd always been there and just never noticed. Just a part of the scenery. Now, whether or not this man had always been in this location, and yet the disciples and Jesus never really attach any immediate significance to him, just simply because of the timing, Jesus is held off until this moment in time for this lesson. So he passes by, he sees a man that's blind from birth, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, notice the question, who sinned? This man, who has been blind from birth, or his parents, in order that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but in order that the works of God could be manifest or displayed or brought to light in him, we must work the works of him who sent me, notice that, change of pronouns, we we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming and no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spits upon the ground. He makes mud with the saliva. He anoints the man's eyes with the mud. And he says to the man, now notice this, because up until now, it's Jesus and the disciples having conversation about the man. And Jesus anoints the man's eyes with the mud, and he says to him, now I want you to go to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And there at the pool of Siloam, I want you to wash. So he went, and he washed. And he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. But the man kept on saying, I am the guy. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I have no idea. It's quite a story. Now there's going to be a lot of interactions in the rest of the chapter. We're going to focus on the beginning question and answer. We're not going to take a lot of time to actually look at the miracle. There's a lot of things that are mysterious here. You know, why did Jesus spit, use his saliva, make mud, and anoint the man's eyes? How many of you liked it when you were a little kid when your mom would spit in her hand and wipe your face after, you know, 
you know, you ate at McDonald's and you had your Happy Meal all over your face, and now you're going to go into church or whatever, and it's like, Mom, where get that off. Aren't you glad now that they got those wet wipes and everybody carries them in the car? You know, who wants saliva on your face? So Jesus takes, spits on the ground, makes mud, anoints the guy's eyes, and says to him, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. The last time we saw the point of the, excuse me, the pool of Siloam was in chapter 7 when Jesus went there and he says, I am the water of life. Come and drink of me. And he did so in the Feast of Tabernacles on the high holy day when the high priest has gone and has gathered water at the pool of Siloam. And we studied all through that. And now Jesus sends this guy to the pool of Siloam and he says, go wash there. This is very reminiscent, we'll look at this in more details, of a guy in the Old Testament named Naaman. Remember Naaman the leper? And he wants to be healed. And a maiden who had come from the northern tribes of Israel says, there is a prophet in Israel. You go there and you can be healed. He goes there and he finds the king. The king says, don't come to me. I can't fix your problem. Go talk to Elijah. He goes down and Elijah says, Elisha says to him, go to the Jordan River and dip in it seven times, and you will be clean. And the guy gets all in a huff. I could have stayed home and gone to the rivers in Syria that are so much cleaner, and I could have got cleansed there. Why did I come here? Finally, one of his servants says to him, if the guy had told you to do something that was very difficult, you would have done it. So why don't you just go do what he told you to do and dunk in the river and see if it happens? And he goes down there, and he dunks seven times. He comes up, and the leprosy was gone. But it was a step of faith he had to take to get down in the water. And so God is saying to this man who cannot see, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam, and I want you to wash this mud off your eyes. And when he does so, he receives his sight. And nobody understands what's happened. I don't want to work through all those details this morning. I want to look at the beginning. So let's just look at the beginning of the chapter and notice what happens. He passes by. He sees a man who has been blind from birth. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's stop there. There is a question for the rabbi. Jesus is six times in the New Testament, or in the Gospel of John, six times Jesus is called a rabbi. The word rabbi comes from an Aramaic term. It is a title of respect. And the word simply is like a title of respect for a scholar teacher. Maybe it's like what we would say in our culture, professor, rabbi. Now, obviously, we know that in Judaism, that is what a teacher is called even today. He is called a rabbi. And so six times in John's gospel, somebody comes to Jesus and refers to him as a rabbi, as a teacher. It is a title of respect that brings great dignity. 
the typical teaching method of a Jewish rabbi was to use a format of question and answer. And so those questions and answers would arise in everyday settings. And so as the Jewish people and the disciples would follow Jesus, they would see something going on and they would simply ask Jesus about it. And then Jesus would take that opportunity and he would use it as a platform to teach. That sounds very much like what God tells all of us to do in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6. In Deuteronomy in chapter 6, God says to his hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. And you shall love him and worship him with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you shall be in your mouth. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. When you walk along the road. And when you sit in your house. When you rise up. When you lie down. And so it is in that format, that format of everyday life that Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And so they come to him with a question. Now, I want us to consider the question that is posed by the disciples. The disciples do not come to Jesus and say to him, why is this man blind? They come and say what? Who sinned? Who is responsible for this man's blindness? Now, the two are related, and we will look at the why concept, but it's important to think about the actual question that they are posing to Jesus. They are asking Jesus, who is responsible for this man's blindness? Is it that this man sinned? or that his parents did. So their premise, what is their premise? The premise behind their question is that particular sins by individuals are the root cause of physical sufferings, right? That is the premise. These guys have seen this in life. We've all seen people suffering. We've all seen people that get sick. Many times we see people that have like a string of Murphy's Law, right? And everything's going bad. And what is everybody thinking in their mind? Man, I wonder what bad sin he's got in his closet. I wonder what that guy did. God is really judging him. That's kind of the natural inclination of all of us. It's kind of the premise that many times we feel when we see somebody else going through suffering. You know what else? As soon as things go bad for us, as soon as you go out in the morning and you try to your truck, start your truck and it won't start, and then you get out of the truck and you go to walk to the house and you slip on the ice and break your leg, you know, and then, and then the dog dies, you know, and everything's going wrong and you're like, what in the world is happening? God, what did I do? Why did I make you so mad, right? This is the natural inclination of the human heart. Some of it arises because we live in a sinful world and all of us knows that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us know we sin. And all of us know that that sin demands 
punishment. And so intuitively, when we see things going wrong, we think God is starting to punish us. That is the question. It's kind of like a retribution theology, isn't it? A retribution theology. We will talk a little bit later in the message about three friends of a man named Job, who are the classic illustration in the gospel or in the Bible of people who held to retribution theology. They go to their friend Job, and everything's gone wrong for Job, and they're going to go be his friends and give him counsel, and what do they say to him immediately? Well, let's start by hearing you make your confession. You tell us what you've been doing wrong, and we'll figure out why this has happened to you. Retribution theology. Now, I think that their question is linked to a specific Old Testament example. Now, there's probably many things they could be thinking about, but one of them, I think, that is a perfect illustration of this is the story in 2 Samuel of a guy named David who gets a hankering for a young woman taking a bath on a rooftop. Her name is Bathsheba. He has an affair with her. To cover up the deed, he tries to have her husband killed in battle. Well, he tries to bring him home. Thinks, well, if we bring him home, they'll get together and everything will be covered. The guy has more honor and dignity than David and will not go into his wife. Goes back to battle. David sends with the guy a letter that is his sentence of death. He gives it to Joab, and David tells Joab, when you go into the hottest part of the battle, you send Uriah to the front. And when things are going really dicey, everybody pull out and let him die. And David is guilty of murder. Adultery, murder, cover-up, and the baby is born. Nathan comes in and confronts David. Nathan says to David, because of what you've done, you're going to lose your family. You're going to have turmoil from here on out. Someone else is going to take your wives and do what you did in private, do publicly on a hilltop, to all your concubines. And this child is going to die. A little while later, child takes sick. Now, we don't know. The text does not tell us how long the baby was in the world before it got ill. The Bible doesn't tell us. It calls it the person a child, although it never gives us his name. The child takes ill. David fasts and prays for seven days. And on the seventh day, the baby dies. All of his 
servants are like, oh, no, David has not ate for seven days. If we tell him what has happened to this child, he's going to harm himself. David notices them talking amongst themselves. David says to them, is the baby dead? They say, yes, it is. He gets up. He washes his face. He asks for a meal. And everybody was mystified. And David says this, while the child was alive, there was hope. But now, that child will not come to me, but I will go to it. I will go to him. In that promise in Scripture, there is tremendous comfort for those who lose a child in infancy. That child is not going to return to us, no. But we will go and we will see that child. We will be with him. I think there's a link. I think there's a link in these people's mind as they see this man who is blind. Now, here's the dilemma. These guys have bought into kind of a retribution theology. If somebody has done something wrong, then God is going to pay them back with some sort of suffering. So when they look at this man, they are left with two alternatives. And I don't think their question is in any way trite or snarky. They really want to know what's going on here. So they say to Jesus, okay, who sinned? Was it this man who was born blind, or was it his parents? Now, there is an immediate dilemma there in both categories. Because can a preborn be guilty of a particular sin that would merit God's judgment? No. So these guys are left with that dilemma. They're thinking, okay, if this guy cannot see, and the only reason that we suffer in this life is because of our sin, and this guy was born, and he could not see when he was born, then how could he sin in the womb? How could he merit God's judgment before he even came into this world? And so they want to know that. The other thing that's in their dilemma is this. Why would God judge a child for his parents' sin, right? Why would God judge a child for his parents' sin? That's a dilemma, because in Ezekiel chapter 18, the Bible says this, the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. And in that chapter, God lays out various scenarios, and he says, you know, a father will not die for the sins of his child, and a child will not die for the sins of his father. So these guys have a dilemma, and they really want to know the answer to it. If God is judging this man for sin, then who sinned? It couldn't be the man himself, because he was born in that condition. And it would not be just for God to judge the child for his parents' sin. So let's try to unpack that dilemma for a minute. There is a failure on their part to discern some very key distinctions. Some key distinctions. The first one is the difference between original sin 
and ordinary sins. Now, I used ordinary just because it kind of transliterated. There is no sin that is ordinary, right? I'm not making light of sin in any way. But there was original sin, and then there are everyday sins that we commit as a result of original sin. Original sin, the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden, was never duplicated in all of human history. There was no sin like it. Now, we look at it and we think it wasn't that bad a sin. They just ate of the forbidden tree. But nevertheless, it was the original sin that started it all. And because of Adam's sin, death and sin was imputed to all of his children. So in a very real way, we bear the consequence and guilt, and let's use the word guilt, of Adam's transgression. It was imputed to us in Adam. And there is a key distinction between that original sin and every sin that we as humans have committed since that day. <coughs> the other thing, that they have not discerned is there is a huge difference between guilt and consequence. Did God judge the baby of David and Bathsheba because the baby had done anything wrong? No, it simply was bearing the consequence of their sin. There was no guilt in the baby. It's not the baby's fault. The baby is guilty of nothing. But the consequence of the parent's sin is affecting that child. This happens in the world all the time, doesn't it? Listen, we do not sin in a vacuum. The sins of the father do not pass in their guilt to the child. But the sins of the father do pass to the child in their consequence, don't they? If I embrace a lifestyle that is anti-God, I will bear the guilt of my decisions. But my children will carry many of the consequences of my choice. So they have failed to understand that distinction. Not that there's necessarily any consequence that this young man is facing for particular sin. But it's important we note that when we think about retribution theology. There is a difference between guilt and consequence. Now, there are two key words in the rabbi's answer. And I want to just notice this real quick. The first one is in verse 4. He says, we. Who's going to heal the God? Jesus. And yet Jesus says what? We. Talking to the disciples. Look, whenever we think about our ministry for the Lord, it's not a me thing. It's not an I thing. It's a we thing. Isn't it? God does something through us and with us. It is we partnering with God. And then he says, we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus is the Lord. He directs. He leads. He works through us. 
and we participate, and it's a we. We should never, we should never take ownership for that which the Lord does with us and through us. It's him. It's a we thing. The other thing that is important to note here is this word manifest. Notice how Jesus answers their question. He says it's neither. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, strong contrast, but that the work of God might be manifest, might be displayed in him. Now, that is a very important thing, and it bridges us into the rest of the message for a few minutes. He is saying God has a work that he wants to reveal through this man's suffering. This man has lived his life. However long he has lived, he has lived that life, and he has never seen a sunset. He's never seen a sunrise. He's never seen a baby when he held a baby in his arms. He's never seen. He has suffered. And now God says, I am going to manifest. I'm going to bring to light. He's going to see, so he's going to actually see light. But I'm going to manifest a work in him. So this man's suffering is meant by God to be a platform by which God could display who he is. Oh, if we would view our suffering now our struggles, that God has brought that into our life in his sovereign hand in order to display his work in us and through us. And that is what God is telling this man. That is, that is what Jesus is teaching. There are some ministry lessons for disciples here. Let's look at these quick. The first ministry lesson that I think Jesus is stressing to these people is this. Do not presume. These guys have presumed what? This man who is blind or his parents have sinned in some way that brought judgment on him. And Jesus is telling them, do not presume it was not either of them. It was for this reason, that God might reveal himself through him. Do not presume. We could go to Job. We could talk about his three friends. You remember the story of Job and his three friends who presumed that everything that came down on Job's head came down on his head because he was sinning against God in secret. <coughs> we should not presume. When we live life together in community in a church or in our community and we see other people going through hard times, we should not presume that God brought that into their life to judge them. We should not think that way. We should not think that way when God allows something in our life. Now, I'm not saying that we should not examine ourselves. We should. In Scripture, there are many occasions where God brought problems, death or suffering, into people's lives because of sin. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that at the table, the Lord's table, that we examine ourselves. And Paul says, in your church, there are many people who are weak and sick among you, and some of you have died because of the way that you have celebrated the Lord's table. 
So in that case, there were people who were dying and were being judged because of the way they were celebrating the Lord's table. So we should examine ourselves, but we should not presume to know. Here's another thing that I was thinking about this week, too, because I think it's always our propensity. Don't look back to fix the present. Now, what do I mean by that? These disciples are inherently thinking, well, this guy did something wrong in the past. And because of what he did wrong in the past, his present is screwed up. So if we're going to fix the present, we've got to go back in time and go back to the past and fix the past so that this gets fixed. That's kind of inherent in this. Don't look back to fix the present. And I want to hone in on this for a minute. Look, the past is significant. Because it is in the past that the problem, whatever it is in your life, was created. So you got some big thing going on in your life, and you're thinking, how do I get this fixed about myself? I can't see, and I'm not talking physically. I need to get this thing fixed. The past, your past, is significant. Because the problem was created then. But the past does not hold the key to fix it. There's nothing in the past that you can dredge up, that you can remember, that if you just relive it, you could change it. There's nothing in the past that will change you today. It is a ploy of Satan to keep us focused back there. Because if he can keep us focused back there, we will never deal with today. Thank you. The past is significant, but it does not hold the key to fix today. Look, there are two big schools of thought when it comes to counseling. We live in a therapeutic society, don't we? We all got our therapist and our whatever for every little thing that happens to us. And there's two basic, really, mindsets. Is that telling me I got to quit? Two basic mindsets here. One, we're going to call problem-focused, problem-focused counseling. And the other, we're going to call, I'm going to let, that's very legit. So that, that's, a, that's a need to go. So when we close in prayer, let's pray, pray for Lonnie and whatever's got to happen there with the pager. Problem-focused counseling, solution-focused counseling. Many times you go to a counselor today, and what are they going to focus on? The problem. They're going to take you back in time, and they're going to try to find what happened, why it happened, how you felt when it happened, and everything that's gone on back there, and focus on the problem. Thinking that somehow by focusing on the problem, you can get answers to fix today. Now what happens when you focus on a problem? All you do is do what? 
reinforce the problem and make it bigger in your life today. Now, I'm not saying it's not significant. It can have tremendous significance. But focusing on the problem will not fix anything today. To fix today, we focus on what? The solution and the truth. The truth of God's word. That's why it tells us in Romans chapter 12, we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, and our mind, our life is transformed as our mind is renewed. It is in the renewing of our mind that we truly find that transformation. Now, we could take a lot of time with that, and i got to move on. This brings us back to a sovereign God. Listen. I was reading an article by Johnny Erickson Tata. And she was a quote in it that stopped me in my tracks and had me think. She said this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. We're going to come back into this next week because I'm going to bring this to a close, but I'm going to close with one thought. The scripture is for us, and I want to develop this thought in greater detail next week. The scripture is a revelation from God that gives us an understanding. So we see blindness, we see abuse, we see suffering. We see things in the world like war, and we say, why? The world says why, doesn't it? Well, says why? What happened? Who sinned? Who did the bad deed? And people without the scripture don't really have a sufficient answer in any way. But God has given us his word, and it brings that situation into focus. It's blurry. I can't see. I can't understand it. It's like blurry vision. When I don't got my glasses on, I can't see you very well. When I put them on, I can. It brings things into focus. God's word is a scripture. It's a revelation that helps us have understanding. Now, my glasses are single-lensed. I don't have, I said, I was going to say binoculars. What do they call Bifocals? And I surely don't have trifocals, although I should have them both. Because when I'm reading, I can't see very well if I got my glasses on, so I got to take them off. Now, some of you feel sorry for me. The reason I don't have bifocals is because I really don't want them. I just like to live this way. I don't mind putting my glasses on and off. That's just who I am. So don't go and buy me a pair for Pastor Appreciation Month. I'll never wear them. Trifocals. Take a trifocals. Distance. Intermediate and up close. And those trifocal lenses give me the ability to see clearly each one of those places. Distance, big picture. God is sovereign. He does what he pleases. Exodus chapter 4, we'll look at it next week. Who creates the blind? Well, that's something to wrestle with. 
That's the distance one. Big picture. God is sovereign. Intermediate between God and me, there's also something that's blurry. And if I put on my trifocals, I can see it, and it's this. In between God and his good design and his sovereignty is an evil force. We talked about it in Psalm 82. It's Satan. It's his kingdom. And what God would do for good, Satan would destroy and do for evil. And he would use it to bring me down. And unless I would have the scripture to explain this, these trifocals, I wouldn't understand that. But because I've got the Bible, I understand that God is good and he is faithful. But there is a force in between me and God that takes what God has designed and seeks to use it to destroy. And so those two things are in focus now. I can understand that. But then when I look at me up close and my particular struggle, God's word brings that into focus too. Because even when Satan sought to destroy me and God brought something into my life that was suffering for my good and his glory, sometimes that just doesn't seem like, wow, I really like that. Not up close and personal to me. But when I understand in God's word, the cross. And I understand what Jesus did. And the gospel. And I understand eternity. And I get a perspective. Then even my particular pain begins to come into focus. And I may not know the why but I can trust it. And so the Bible's like a pair of trifocals. We'll look at them a little more in depth next week as we think of the sovereignty of God in suffering. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word, for your truth. Lord, I know that many people in this room have gone through great struggle, through many hardships, and sometimes we ask why. Lord, forgive us for many times being like Job's friends when we see others suffering. Help us, Father, to accept from your hand the truth that, Lord, you permit what you hate in order to accomplish what you love. So I pray in Jesus' name.